So have you guys ever, ever heard the expression, don't judge a book by its cover? Or how about beauty is in the eyes of the beholder? What about beauty is only skin deep, but ugly goes to the bone? Have you heard that one? <laughs> and, and, and all of those just basically mean that at times in life, you and I will encounter people that the world considers ugly and unattractive, but who are actually gracious and beautiful on the inside. And we will also come across what the world considers to be very beautiful people who have a very dark and ugly spirit on the inside, proving that one does not always equal the other, and that's just a fact of life. And as we've seen over the the last couple of weeks in our series in Romans, in the, the opening verses of this letter, the Apostle Paul has shown that God is an absolute realist when it comes to looking at people. See, he sees beneath the varnish and beneath the facade of our lives, and he knows our secrets. He sees the skeletons that are rattling around inside the closet. He knows all those carefully concealed and hidden areas of our lives that we keep tucked away. And because of that, because of that, he is completely unimpressed by any pretended piety or any phony religious mask that we try to disguise ourselves with. And the Apostle Paul is going to pick up that idea in our reading today as we continue on our series. This is going to be from Romans uh, chapter 2, beginning in verse 17. I'm sorry, chapter 3, 17, excuse me. He writes, you call yourselves Jews because you're relying on God's law and you boast about your special relationship with him. You know what he wants. You know what is right because you have been taught his law. You're convinced that you're a guide to the blind, a light for people who are lost in darkness. You think you can instruct the ignorant and teach children the ways of God, where you are certain that God's law gives you complete knowledge and truth. Well, if you teach others, why don't you teach yourself? You tell others not to steal, but do you steal? You say it's wrong to commit adultery, but do you commit adultery? You condemn idolatry, but do you use items stolen from pagan temples? You're so proud of knowing the law, but you dishonor God by breaking it. No wonder the scriptures say this. Gentiles blaspheme the name of God because of it. The Jewish ceremony of circumcision has value only if you obey the law of God. But if you don't obey God's law, you're no better off than an uncircumcised Gentile. And if the Gentiles obey God's law, won't God declare them to be his own people? In fact, uncircumcised Gentiles who keep God's law will condemn you Jews who are circumcised and possess God's law but don't obey it. For you are not a true Jew just because you were born of Jewish parents or because you've gone through the ceremony of circumcision. No, a true Jew is one whose heart is right with God. And true circumcision is not merely obeying the letter of the law. Rather, it is a change of heart produced by the Spirit. And a person with a changed heart seeks praise from God and not from people. Amen? So we started out talking about expressions, speaking of expressions. So have you ever heard the expression, a red herring? Right? If, if you haven't, a red herring is just something that diverts attention away from an issue. It's a kind of a dishonest attempt to sidetrack your attention away from whatever the primary point is of the discussion that you're having. It's, it's basically a conversational sleight of hand. And the phrase 
originated, so I understand, from the practice where criminals who, who thought they were being tracked by bloodhounds in the early days, in order to throw the dogs off the scent, would drag a red herring, a herring that's, you know, smoked because it's red in color behind them on the trail to confuse the scent and divert their tracker. So now the phrase red herring has kind of just come to mean an argument that tries to distract the audience from the, the issue in question through basically what would be the introduction of a piece of information that's really beside the point of what you're talking about. And you know what? Men and women have been using that tactic since the very beginning. Think for a minute like of Adam and Eve after realizing that they were naked and they begin to reach for fig leaves to cover themselves as if just doing that could hide from God what they had done. Or do you remember when Christ spoke to the woman at the well in Samaria and suddenly he says to her, go and get your husband. And then she confesses that she doesn't have a husband and he said to her, you're right, you've had five husbands and the one you're living with now isn't your husband either. And do you remember what she did? She threw our Lord a red herring, right? She turned around to the mountain behind her and in effect said, hey, look over there. Our fathers say this is the place to worship God, but you say it's in Jerusalem. So which is it? And you see what she did is when Jesus got too close to the heart of this woman's problem, she tried to throw him off the track by making a hard right turn in the conversation. That's the idea of what Paul is saying today, because that is exactly what all of humanity does. When we begin to recognize what God is like, when we recognize our sinfulness and his holiness, and then all at once we start to get uncomfortable and start looking for a a red herring to drag across our path and throw God off our trail, hoping that maybe he's going to be satisfied by something else, something that that we say or that we do, and then leave us alone about all of the stuff that we don't really want to surrender to his sovereignty. And you know what the most frequent fish that we reach for, the most common facade that people try to erect between themselves and God, oddly enough, is religion. Now, in the case of the Jews, that meant circumcision. But Paul is saying here that God isn't fooled by the physical act one bit. It doesn't make a difference to him. And he is pointing out that regardless of what they have been taught, there is absolutely no value to an outward religious ordinance or ritual. None at all. Because if the meaning behind it and the commitment of the heart is missing, then that religious act is meaningless too. Just doing certain things because you think God requires them and and not because they're a voluntary expression of your love for God is about as meaningful as buying yourself a birthday present. And Paul is saying to the Jews in Rome and to us today, don't insult the God who loves you by muttering some meaningless words or by play-acting it some religious practice that in the end leaves you completely unchanged. It doesn't do any good. Like a, a dentist that I read about who, who had a really interesting method to overcome people's objections to what they perceived as his high prices, and this is what he did. He took x-rays of every patient who came in, and then he made him this special offer. He said, for $500, I'll fill all of these cavities that you see here. But if you don't want to pay that much, if that's too much of a burden, For $5, I'll just retouch the x-ray and you can go. Right? Now, you see, spiritual rituals without any real meaning behind it is just like that, right? They're they're a retouched x-ray, but the cavities are still there. And, you know, this is the perfect time to start thinking about these things 
as we get closer to the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation at the end of October, because the whole idea of the efficacy behind the action of our Christian sacraments is right at the heart of why Martin Luther broke away from the church in Rome. And I've said before, just to make sure there's no misunderstanding, I have very great respect for our Catholic brothers and sisters, and, and I believe that there are many of them who are genuine followers of Christ. But sadly, the majority of them are completely deluded about the nature and effect of the sacrament, particularly the Lord's Supper. Now, in our brothers and sisters' Roman Catholic view, upon consecration by a priest, the bread and wine are said to actually change into the real body and the real blood of Christ, which is offered over and over and over in the perpetual celebration of the Mass. This is an, I'm going to give you an excerpt of Catholic doctrine from the Council of Trent. This is, this is what they said. By the consecration of bread and wine, there takes place a change of the whole substance of bread into the substance of the body of our Lord, and of the whole substance of the wine into the substance of his blood. They said the Eucharist also makes present Christ's sacrifice on the cross in an unbloody manner every time it is offered, and for that reason it is sometimes known as the holy sacrifice of the Mass. So kind of keep that in one part of your mind. Okay? But if you, if you think about that, that kind of primarily external view really stands in stark contrast to what we affirm as Protestants. Right? Because our evangelical and Reformed faith defines the sacrament not as something physical, but as an outward sign of an inward spiritual grace, an inward reality. Martin, Martin Luther said, Christ's body and blood are present in, with, and under the forms of bread and wine even though the physical elements themselves don't change. You know, also like Martin Luther, we reject the idea that the Eucharist is a repeated sacrifice because the scriptures confirm for us that Christ suffered for our sins once for all time. He never sinned, but he died for sinners to bring you safely home to God. He suffered physical death once, but was raised to life in the spirit. And see, there's no need for Christ to be offered over and over. You know, our, our view also derives from men like John Calvin, and I want to share with you a quote from him. Calvin said, Christ is not present bodily in the elements, but he is spiritually present, so that those who receive the elements by faith receive the actual body and blood of Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. And in that same sense, touches Christ with hands so that by eating and drinking bread and wine, Christ's presence penetrates the heart of the believer more nearly than food swallowed by the mouth in his stomach. And that's kind of a really big sentence, but I really like the image behind it, right? He's saying that when we receive the Lord's Supper spiritually by the power of the Holy Spirit, that real presence of Christ enters our heart more nearly than food that you eat with your mouth enters into your stomach. Right? Calvin also said the sacraments are visible words that strengthen faith and nurture discipleship, but you know what? They were never meant to replace the actual word. He taught that no sacrament is ever complete without preaching and the presentation of the gospel. And that is because the call to repentance and the offer of redemption through the person and the work of Jesus Christ is always the point of any outward ritual that we do here. And that goes for everything in worship. Because God isn't fooled by someone mechanically reciting the Apostles' Creed. Nor is he impressed by the mindless repeating of the Lord's Prayer or by having a giant Schofield Bible 
reference guide displayed on your coffee table. See, those things can fool other people, but they don't fool God one bit. Because God's question is always, what effect does the truth contained inside those things have on the inside of you? Just like it says in John 13, 17, if you know these things, happy are you if you do them. You know these things, happy are you if you do them. And that's the indictment that Paul is bringing against the recipients of this letter. He said, you claim all of these things and and maybe they're true and maybe they aren't, but the real issue is that because you don't practice what you preach, because you say one thing but do another, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of the way you live. One commentator said the hardest person to reach with the gospel is one that clings to something faulty as his assurance of right standing with God. And whatever those things are, they've got to be stripped away. Now, some of you that have known me for a while might know that uh, I spent a fair amount of time after high school studying the fine arts. And in the the art and the the work of classical sculpture, there's a technical term they use called hyperseeing. Hyperseeing is a term used to describe an artist's ability to take a look at at an unformed lump of rock and to see it in four-dimensional space and to know intuitively what it's going to look like as a completed piece. In fact, when when Michelangelo carved uh, an altarpiece entitled The Angel for the Basilica of uh, San Domenico, he said, Every block of stone has a statue inside it, and it's the task of the sculptor to discover it. He said, I I saw the angel in the marble, and I carved, and I carved, and I carved until I set him free. And you know, hyper-seeing is a good description of our all-seeing God because he sees all that we are and more. He looks past the surface and sees the things that we try to conceal. And that's the same idea that the Apostle Paul has been chipping away at in his argument in Romans chapter 2, and he's going to expand on it as we move a little further. He's going to ask this great rhetorical question now in Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. And so he says, then what's the advantage of being a Jew? Is there any value in the ceremony of circumcision? And then he answers his own question. He says, yes, there's great benefit, first of all, The Jews were entrusted with the whole revelation of God. True, some of them were unfaithful, but just because they were unfaithful, does that mean God will be unfaithful? Of course not. Even if everyone else is a liar, God is true. You know, we've talked about this before in Bible study and in Sunday school class, but just imagine for a minute if suddenly, by some strange process. Everyone in this room had a tiny little flat screen TV right in the middle of your forehead that played out a video loop of every single sin that you'd ever committed, right? So that everyone would know everything about everyone else. It'd be a little uncomfortable, wouldn't it? Because we wouldn't be able to cover any of it up. We wouldn't be able to make any excuses. We wouldn't be able to lie about our motivations. It would just be the plain unvarnished reality and living color for all the world to see. And I can guarantee you I would be the first person out those double doors. But you see, a lot of times here in church, we look around and maybe think that, you know, all those people in the seats around us are so holy and so spiritual and so wise. They they never use any bad language. They never overindulged at a party. They never get mad at their spouses or yell at their kids. They never complain about their jobs or sit around watching junk on TV. 
But you know what? If we could take a, a closer look, the truth is that each and every person sitting in the seats around you, and particularly the person standing before you, is a human being. And we all have just as many temptations and weaknesses and personality flaws as everybody else does. So, so if you come to church with the illusion that everyone around you is more perfect than you are, today's a good day to take off those blinders. And if you come to church trying to create that illusion around yourself, it's okay to take the mask off today. Because that's the only way that you and I can truly grow together as brothers and sisters in Christ. Because life in this world is too short and the path of sanctification is too important to try to fool ourselves or anyone else. Now, that doesn't mean spiritual growth and the pursuit of godliness shouldn't be a key part of our lives, but at the same time, there's no room in our fellowship for quote-unquote perfect Christians, and that is because they don't exist this side of heaven. I want to share with you a short excerpt from a Christian blog writer who said, I've gone almost my whole life feeling like a failure as a Christian. He said, I've always understood my spiritual success to be measured by an unspoken set of rules. And if I did A, B, C, and D, I'd be considered a good Christian. I knew everything about how to appear godly, how to act, how to worship, how to pray, how to respond with godly answers. I wanted to fit in with the Christian community, but somehow I never felt good enough. And eventually this false me took over completely, and I lived in it, deceiving even myself at times. They said, in this existence, I have always experienced a significant amount of spiritual envy. I looked at people around me wondering, what was the secret? How could they be experiencing God so intimately? And I lived with fear, fear that people might see right through me. Now I'm done. I'm done. I'm done maintaining the facade of everything's great. I'm done maintaining the facade of I've got everything together. Because for the first time in my life, I believe I'm experiencing freedom in Christ, freedom from guilt and freedom to be who I am. My time with God might be unconventional. I might go through phases where I feel like an inconsistent mess, and I will make mistakes. But my faith now is in Christ alone, and not in myself or in religion. You know, in the same way, a lot of modern-day churchgoers kind of pride themselves in those same things too, right? We, we create all these kind of labels. We're conservative or charismatic or Pentecostal or Baptist or congregational, right? Either that or we get hung up on following a, maybe a popular television preacher or become overly attached to a, a famous Christian writer. But Paul shows a great principle here that we have to always bear in mind. And that is, brothers and sisters, people who are steeped in religion talk about names and labels and organizations. But people who are steeped in authentic Christianity talk about Jesus. That's a world of difference. People who are steeped in authentic Christianity Talk about Jesus. And that's the one way we can distinguish between external religion and a genuine relationship with Christ. Because just like we said at the beginning, appearances are sometimes vastly different than reality. And we have to make sure that we really understand those labels that we kind of throw around at each other so loosely. Like the man I read about, he went to the grocery store, he picked up several items, and he brought them up to the counter, and the, the clerk rung him up and smiled and wished him a good day. and and started waiting on the next person in line, but the man just stood there. So the clerk said, oh, I'm sorry, was there something else I could help you with? And the man kind of a little impatiently replied, well, yes, where's the fat? 
Now, the clerk didn't quite understand what she heard, didn't know what the man was talking about. So she said, excuse me, sir, you said fat? And he said, yes, fat, give me the fat. Well, by now, because he's shouting, you know, he kind of kind of got heated and got a little ruckus going. So the manager of the store comes over and says, excuse me, sir, is there a problem here? The customer said, yes, there's a problem here. I picked up this yogurt because the label says fat-free on it, and your clerk won't give me my free fat. Because, you know, in this, in this day and in this age when we're so confused about labels on food that whether it's supposed to be good for us or determine whether what's inside is bad for us, we're equally confused about the labels that we use for each other and for ourselves. And that's the point that Paul kind of wants to drive home today, and that is it's what's on the inside that matters. Because you see, for Jews, their label was circumcision. For Gentiles, our label can be baptism or, or church membership. But if the paper wrapper that's on the outside doesn't match the inside, something is very seriously wrong. Because, brothers and sisters, baptism can't save you. The Lord's Supper cannot save you. Church membership cannot save you. Good works can't save you. And those things aren't bad. They're wonderful, and they're beautiful, and they're meaningful, but only as an outward expression of an inward change that has already taken place. And that's why Paul, as he closes out this chapter 3, he says, Can we boast, then, that we've done anything to be accepted by God? No. Because our acquittal is based not on obeying the law, it is based on faith. So we are made right with God through faith and not by obeying the law. Because brothers and sisters, your religion can't save you, but Jesus can. That's the good news of the gospel. That's the message of this infallible word that is our only hope for the future. That we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. That is a God who is not fooled by our appearance. He's not fooled by anything that we do or thrown off the trail by subterfuge or placated by our religion, but a God that has a plan for our perfection that he has been working out until the image is complete, until the contents match the outside cover, until we surrender ourselves into the hands of the master. And I want to close just real briefly with a this one stanza of a poem by James McDonald. I think he did a good job kind of encapsulating this. He said, Our doubt whispers, thou art such a vile blot. He cannot love for me. But if what I am he loveth not, he loves what I shall be. What I am he loveth not, he loves what I shall be. And brothers and sisters, God loves us, even as we are being conformed more and more into the image of Christ, so that in the end, only he is shown to be the center of all things. Amen? you pray with me? Father God, we thank you for sending your son. We thank you for the perfect image of you that he brought into this world. And we thank you, Lord, that through your word and through the spirit and through the sacraments, you are conforming us closer and closer into his likeness. So we ask, Father, you be with us as we go forward this week, that we could be your image bearers in our homes, in our communities, in our parks, that everywhere we go, Lord, we might take the name of Jesus with us. Amen.